Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Encounter Church. Welcome to part four of our series, All the Wrong Places, where we are taking a look at all of the wrong places to put our hope and our happiness. And today in part four, we're looking at the wrong place of comfort, of the good life, of the easy life. We're on part three of our series, All the Wrong Places, not part four of all. That's happening next week. Let's just start it on over again. Camera team, just let me know when we're ready for our online community. Welcome, everybody, to Encounter Church, uh, to part three of our series, All the Wrong Places, where for today we are talking about the wrong place of finding our hope and happiness in perfectionism and getting everything perfect all the time. Did I mess up? Did I act imperfectly? Or was that just the best sermon intro ever? <laughs> we like to have fun here at Encounter Church. Um, we are actually on part three, and we're talking about perfectionism, and we're talking about that incessant need to always get everything right all of the time. And I don't know who this is going to preach to and minister to, like, in particular, but I, knew, I do know that I'm one of these. Uh, I fit in this category, so I'm a little bit just uh, using this time to talk to myself uh, just a little bit here. Um, what I do is I have a high bar for myself that I try to live into. I also have this uh, expectation of all of you. Uh, I have a high bar for me that I'm trying to live into. And then there's the spiritual layer on top of it, right, where I have this high bar that God has on me that I'm trying to hit into, and I don't hit it. And I don't hit it from week to week. I don't hit it from moment to moment. And then a new feeling starts to set in. Some of this discouragement starts to set in. I'll tell you where it, where it, I feel it most acutely is that I had a, um, a preaching class one time and, uh, and the, the teacher of the, the course said, hey, listen, like a good sermon is going to at least be three things. They said, number one, it's biblically accurate. Makes sense. Number two, Christ-centered. Love that. And number three, it's life-changing. And he thought, seriously, dude, life changing? And I got to do this like every weekend and all of our lives are always going to be changed every single weekend? Like it doesn't take very long for this feeling to start to set in. Like, I don't know. I don't think we're like all being changed like every single weekend. I know that's God's job and the Holy Spirit. And I don't totally know how that works, but I know it's up to, up to him. But still, there's like this, this grind kind of like mentality on it that, well, when it doesn't happen, when you don't see it all the time, discouragement follows closely behind. That's one of the downsides, one of the problems of perfectionism. And perfectionism is just all over. It's in, the, it's in the air we breathe. It's in the water we drink. Like in our culture, it's not good enough anymore just to, just to be good or even great. It's that our standard, our goal is perfection, is all the way there. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of a student somewhere who's just racking his mind, doing everything he can in order to study up for the SAT, ACT, because his goal isn't just to be good, it's to be perfect. It's to hit 36 and not a point less, 35. <laughs> good luck with your safety school, kid, right? Like we want to, we want to be perfect. That's where the goal is. I'm thinking of, um, I'm thinking of some of the, the sports icons that we celebrate. Tiger Woods winning all four majors, one, two, three, four, in consecutive order. It wasn't just great, it was perfect. Boxer from Grand Rapids, Floyd Mayweather Jr., a perfect record, right? It's not great, it's perfection. It's a step beyond that. We think about musicians, the great ones, Beethoven, Michael Jackson, having perfect pitch to a lesser extent, Mariah Carey, but it's still perfect pitch. 
Like, we don't just celebrate great pitch, but perfect pitch. You kind of get what I'm saying? Speaking of pitching, baseball fans, a perfect game uh, is when a pitcher throws and not a single person on the other team gets on base, any base, for any reason. And I'm like, not super baseball fan, but I'm going, that's got to be like the most boring game to watch. But it's the most celebrated thing in the game. Not just a great game, a perfect game is the goal, is what's celebrated. It's just, it's out there. It's in the air we breathe. It's in the water we drink. Not just greatness, it's perfection. And it causes problems. Like I said, for me, it causes discouragement. Some of you, some of you have had this experience where High standards cause arguments, cause small things to blossom and grow into big things. I had a friend earlier this week tell me that where, uh, where he grew up, his parents would argue uh, back and forth with each other about like the perfect way to park their cars in the garage. And he thought it was just a them thing until he started going over to other people's house and he noticed like all the garages had, a lot of the garages had tennis balls hanging from the rafters and the ceiling. Some of you know where I'm talking. Because you don't just want to park well, you want to park perfectly in the garage. And when somebody messes it up, and when somebody, and you got to like kind of shimmy like through there a little ways, I mean, if, what are you doing? Don't you know there's a right and a wrong, there's a perfect and an imperfect way to park your car. And then the arguments start in, and then the arguments blossom. Little things grow into big things, all because our goal, our standard is perfection. And there's one group of people, there's one class of people that experience this, I think, in my observation, outside looking in, more than anyone else. Moms of young kids, and I'm, I'm out on a limb here, okay, so I'm going to speak for you instead of just to you, but this is my observation, is that moms of young kids struggle with this thing because the standard of perfection just weighs so heavily all the time. It's like, hey, you better be bringing your kids to the zoo and having a craft for them to do afterwards. Their birthday parties better have a theme to them, all of them with all of their friends for every one of the birthday and all of your kids. And by the way, you should make sure that they have nutritious food to eat, like organic carrots and kale, when the only thing they want to eat is cake and Oreos. In fact, the only thing I want to eat is cake and Oreos, right? And the standard of perfection is so incredibly high. I've talked to so many people who struggle with this, who struggle with this tension of like, I'm working outside the home and then I'm, I'm feeling guilty for not spending more time with my family back at home. Or, or maybe I don't work outside the home. Maybe I work with the kids. I stay at home with them to make sure they get a start off in life well. And, and then the guilt that comes with, well, maybe I should be working, doing something to bring in a little financial income to support the family. You can't win, ever. And guilt comes along with this as a byproduct, as a problem of perfectionism. Like, listen, you guys know this because you've lived this. This perfectionism, it's discouraging. It causes arguments. This guilt, there's shame. It just blossoms. And then, like I said earlier, there's this whole spiritual level on this thing, too. Because Jesus said in his world-famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You can't win. I can't win. Brene Brown, who's a thought leader in this space, I think said it best. Let me just read for you what she wrote. She said that when perfectionism is driving, shame usually rides shotgun and fear is the annoying backseat driver. I love that picture. When perfectionism is driving, shame and fear are not far off. 
Like, it's not working. This isn't a preacher, a preacher problem. This is a people problem. This isn't just a mom problem. This is a most of us problem. And what we're going to see Jesus do, we're going to see Jesus speak into this space. He's going to speak to you and I through this by talking to a couple of real solid perfectionists in the Bible. He's going to lead them through, and I think there's going to be some takeaways for the rest of us as well. Um, What follows, what comes after, is going to be what I call a sermon sandwich. Sounds delicious, I know. It's one story, top and bottom bun, and then like the meat and cheese layer in the middle is another story. We'll just jump into it. It'll make more sense this way. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going. Uh, Luke chapter 10, starting off in verse 38, where we read that as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, and I just love that he lets us readers know that they're on their way. Luke does this like a dozen times in his gospel and his Jesus story where he just goes, hey, they're moving somewhere. They're going somewhere. Luke is always careful to point out that every single one of these conversations with Jesus happens on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to his death and resurrection. For Luke, that's, that's the pinnacle. That's the apex. That's everything. Everything that happens before just leads up to this one momentous occasion. That's Jesus at the center. I love it. It's got nothing to do with perfectionism, but I just wanted you to know it. Continuing on in the story. So Jesus' disciples, they're on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations, the preparations that underlined had to be made. They had to be made. These preparations were not going to take care of themselves. I don't want to read like too much into it, but I just get, kind of get the sense, like family dynamics at work here. Mary's probably the youngest. Like she got out of chores. Right? Her, her, her curfew was maybe a little more nimble, a little more flexible than Martha's was at her age growing up. Mary gets to sit at Jesus' feet. Nobody, you know, causes an issue there. That's fine. Martha, oldest, right? She's following the rules, right? Rule follower, rule keeper. She's probably an Enneagram one for some of you fans over there, right? Martha's like, I, somebody has to make sure the preparations are made and that person is going to be me. By the way, Martha and Mary, they also have a brother, Lazarus, who died and Jesus brought him back from the dead and they all celebrated bringing the family together. Typical middle child, just throwing it out there. I don't know about all this. That's just speculation, by the way. They were all siblings, though. Uh, Martha, by the way, Martha, the preparations, when Jesus shows up to a place, it's rarely just Jesus. In case you didn't get it, Jesus is kind of a people person. He's around people, like, all the time. When Jesus shows up, at minimum, his close entourage, Peter, James, and John, the four of them. And when Jesus shows up, it could have been Jesus and the 12 disciples. When Jesus shows up, it could have been Jesus and the 12 and 112 others, a whole bunch of group, a crowd, sometimes also called his followers or his disciples. The point is, when Jesus shows up, it's often a large gathering. That's where Martha comes in. I've got a pantry full. I've got recipes in hand. I'm ready for this. It reminds me of this old comic strip that I read when I was, a, I was a kid. We had these comic strip books lying around the house. Just a show of hands. Online, you're invited to play too in the room. How many of you remember Calvin and Hobbes? Yes! Oh, I love it so much. Some big fans. Um, there's this comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes. He's maybe like uh, eight or ten years old, this little kid. He's talking to his dad. And he goes, Dad, what's a control freak? 
And his dad reading the paper doesn't skip a beat goes, that's what lazy, careless, cut corner workers call anyone who cares enough to do something right. And Calvin goes, am I in the presence of their king? Should I kneel? (laughs) His dad just goes, if anything works in this world, it's because one of us took charge. (laughs) This is Martha. This is Martha. You could call her Enneagram One. You could call her control freak. You could call her the oldest. You could call her a perfectionist. She's got a plan. She's taking charge. Her pantry is full. Her recipes are in hand. She is ready for this. There's a problem in the story, though. Luke uses the word distracted. Literally, her mind is split, is the word. Her attention is divided. The problem in the story is that she missed Jesus. The problem in the story is that Jesus came. Not from Galilee, where he did a lot of his ministry. Not even from Nazareth, where he grew up. Jesus came from heaven to earth. And he was here physically in bodily form, only for a little while, especially in the whole history of all of time. He was here just for a split second, a blink of an eye in comparison to everything. Jesus was here, and he was actually not just here, but he was in her living room. And somebody comes up to Mary, or sorry, comes up to Martha later and goes, Martha, Jesus came from heaven and earth and hung out in your living room. How was it? What would you talk about? What's he like? And she had nothing to say except the hummus was great. (laughs) The problem is that she missed. She missed Jesus. That's, That's what perfectionism does. Perfectionism puts performance over people. Uh, Perfectionism, it it drives this wedge between people. It gets in the way of people's connection, people coming together. Here's what I'd like to do today. Um, I would I would like to pose three different forms of perfectionism to you, and I just want to invite you to consider, like, which one of these you are, which one you struggle with. Um, There's self-perfection, there's external perfection, and there's others-oriented perfection. Uh, Self-perfection. I have a high bar for myself. I raise that thing up all the way, and I can't always reach my expectations for me. Psychology Today article I read in preparation for this uh, points this out, this uh, kind of self-perfectionism and going, feelings that come alongside the problems of this kind of perfectionism, self-perfection. I feel guilty all the time, and I feel ineffective, uh, inadequate, and also inefficient because if something can't get done perfectly, it usually won't get done at all. Self-perfection. There's external perfection. It's not that I have a high bar for myself. It's that I just assume you have a high bar for me. And so I'm always trying to live into the bar that you're putting up for me. We've got some external perfectionists going on. Maybe you work with them. Maybe you work for them. But, but this is like, this is the kind, of, uh, the kind of assumption that because people are putting these high bars on me all the time, I'm trying to live up to it. I can't always close that gap. I can't always get there. And so what do I do? I run away and I hide. 
I isolate myself because I don't want you to notice that I'm not living up and filling into that gap. And there's feelings of isolation, there's feelings of anxiety, and there's feelings of depression that come along with that because I can't be together with people. You can start to see how that perfection drives people away from each other and divides self, external, and other. Others-oriented perfection. That's those of us who put the high standards on somebody else. It's confession time. No show of hands, but you know who you are. The people who put that high bar, high expectation on everybody else that they're around. Maybe you aren't one. Maybe you work for one. Hopefully you're not married to one. But these are the high bar when the people around you can't, won't live into and fill, close that gap of the imperfections. There's often a critical and contemptuous spirit that comes along with that. Um, also, sometimes you can tell by the humor. It's, uh, it's demeaning. It's belittling. It's at the expense of somebody else. Confession, self, I have a high bar for myself. External, I assume you have a high bar for me that I can't close and gap. Or others-oriented. Now, the answer to that one is just up to you and God. I mean, that's something to like, God, lead me, lead me the way through this. But this is what God does with perfection. We go to another one, another perfection story. Now, Martha, we kind of move from the top bun into like the meat and cheese sandwich, the, the, middle, the middle part of it. Um, we're going to go to another perfectionist, Paul. New Testament author, like a lot of the New Testament he authored, <laughs> he started a lot of churches and also, he wrote them letters. We're going to go to the letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. We call it 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 6. Paul says, Even if I should boast, I will not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. Can we pause right there and just think about those words for just a minute? Like, even if I were to brag, like, I wouldn't be wrong, because I'd be just speaking the truth, Right? more speculation, I think he had a hard time making and keeping friends. (laughs) He continues, but I refrain. So no one will think of me more than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. I roll emoji. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. We alluded to this one very lightly at a series, God on Mute, we did back in January. And in this one, we just want to highlight, uh, we don't know what the thorn was, probably metaphorical, not an actual thorn. Uh, speculation on the thorn, maybe it was chronic pain that he had, maybe a poor eyesight, maybe anxiety, maybe just seasons of depression that he went to and couldn't get lifted out of all the time. But three times he went through these seasons, God, take this away, take this away, take this away. And God's response wasn't to take it away, it was better than that. God's response was in verse 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is perfected. My power, Greek word teleo, my power is finished. My power is completed. My power is made perfect in your weakness. I think there are fewer places in the Bible in such an efficient use of words that we can see 
the true depth of what the gospel means than in this, these words right here. My power is made perfect in your weakness. That means that our weakness, our imperfections, as we alluded to earlier, the gap that we have between where we are and where others or maybe we ourselves expect us to be, that gap is actually where Jesus and his grace shine through most brightly. That by, if we could somehow deceive ourselves into thinking that that gap could be closed, what we would efficiently and actively be doing is by closing the brightness of Jesus shining through in our lives. It's the places where we fall down that are actually a gift because it shows the world so clearly what God has done in picking us back up. That gap is the tool that God uses to show his glory to his entire world. When we fall down, he picks us up and he gets the credit. It's that gap that we can look at in our own lives and be reminded of how badly we need a savior. You could even go so far as to say that until you see yourself as an imperfect sinner, you won't even need, see the need for a perfect Savior, that gap of our imperfections is everything for those of us who are trying to follow along on Jesus. As Christians, we are going to be the first ones in line to say, I've got a gap. I fall short because we get to be the first ones in line to receive God's word over our lives. There's a difference. There's a difference here between uh, perfectionism and grace. What perfectionism says and what grace says. Uh, perfection says it's about me. Grace says it's about him. Perfection says it's what I've done. Grace says it's about what he has done. Perfectionism says if I obey, finally I will be worthy of God's love. Grace says because God loves me, I am finally free to obey. Perfectionism says, I live for the approval of God. Grace says, I live from the approval of God. It's grace every time. It's the God who shines most brightly in our gap, in our imperfection. His grace is perfected. That is so powerful. The more you and I screw up, the more credit God gets. That's a beautiful story. That's Paul. He get it. He gets it. Because Paul screwed up a lot. From persecuting the church to become a leader in the church, Paul had a gap where the glory of God shone so abundantly clear. A top bun, Mary and Martha, middle kind of meat and cheese sandwich, Paul, bottom bun, back to Luke chapter 10, back to Mary and Martha. It's tempting in the story uh, to, to kind of fall into this like you do you kind of mentality, like as long as you're happy, everybody's happy. It's, it's tempting to go on the story, hey, Mary, you know, she sat at the feet of Jesus and learned all this stuff, typical youngest, right, getting out of work. You do you. If that's where you experience God, more power to you. 
And it's tempting to look at Martha and go, hey, listen, if you're back in the kitchen, you're making preparations, you're working away, uh, if that's where you experience God, hey, more power to you. You do you. Resist the temptation. If it works out for a little while, it doesn't work out in the long run. Already in a few short verses, in a brief interaction, it's already starting to cave. Martha is at her wit's end, and her anger is swelling up. Yes, at her little sister, Mary. Also, her anger is swelling up at Jesus himself. She hits her boiling point. It starts to spill over in Luke 10, verse 40. Martha came to him, came to Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care? Listen to the language. Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset over many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus leans in close and uses her name not once but two times, drawing attention to it, Martha, Martha, and I think he's leaning over, and you just imagine your name in the place of hers. Dirk, Dirk. Few things are needed, just one. Dirk, church, choose. Choose perfect love over perfect performance. Choose perfect love of people over a perfect performance for people. Choose love. Choose people. It's hard. It's messy. In fact, um, that passage that I referenced earlier from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, I didn't share for you the context of when Jesus says that. The context of Jesus saying, be perfect, is in relation to loving people. Specifically in Matthew 5, loving your enemies, loving the people that are most hard to love. Love, even the most unlovable, love imperfect people with the perfect love of God. It's so messy. That's why our value around is we do life together. We get it wrong all the time. We bump into each other all the time. That's why we heard about a group uh, kicking off a little bit earlier, faith in real life. Real life has people. Real life hurt each other sometimes. Real life people misunderstand each other. Faith speaks, shines through real life. Sign up at encounterchurch.org slash events. It's real life. It's hard. It's messy. You guys, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm not there, but I'm getting there. I'm starting to see it. I'm starting to understand that I am not going to be the perfect pastor. I am not going to be a good enough husband, a good enough father. I'm not going to be good enough in the home or the workplace or any other space that I step into. I'm, st- I'm not there. I'm starting to get there to realize I'm not quite there yet. Church, that's okay. It's okay for you to say that too. That's okay, because it's in that gap that Jesus shines through. And my assignment 
What's ahead of me, my calling, is not to make others think that I'm good. My job, my assignment, your job, your assignment, your calling, church, is not to make others think that you're good. Your job and your calling is to make, is to make others think that your God is good. And I'll tell you what makes him look amazing. When you screw up and when you fall down flat on your face in church, it's embarrassing how badly you screwed up. And when, when your Savior picks you up, dusts you off, and sends you on your way, when the world looks at that and says, your God picked you up and loved you through it, I'll tell you, the more you fail, the more it makes him look good. And our job is to make him look good good. Embrace the gap. Embrace the imperfections. Own those things. Don't hide away from them because you're going to put the glory away. You're going to hide the glory from the rest of the world. Your job is to make him look good. And we can do that not by talking about how good we are, but how forgiven we are in him. I just want to end with a request and a story. The request is, and you've probably heard it in the past, have at least the grace for yourself that you would have for others. Namely, I don't know about you, but my internal monologue is so much more critical of myself than of other people around me. Like the things that I allow myself to say to me are so much more critical, are so much more harsh than the things I even think about other people. Have a little grace. Have the grace yeah, I would have for somebody else, for myself. No, no, no. We're going to replace that today. The request is this. Have the grace for yourself that your heavenly Father has for you. It speaks over for you. In a story, parents have seen the videos teaching their kids how to walk. This little kid, you know, eight nine, ten months old. I don't know God, why God makes them this way, but their heads are just so big. You know what I mean? Like as kids, as babies, they're just all top-heavy, and they're trying to walk. I mean, the physics are just not on their side, right? The kid kind of like p- puts himself up, you know, starts walking, takes one step, arms out, kind of like a drunk Frankenstein, wobbling back and forth, two steps, and then flat kid falls right over, flat on his face. It's okay. He's okay. You know, no children were hurt in the telling of this story. Kids don't have a long ways to fall. I'll tell you what you never hear in those those stories in that video. You never hear the dad in the story go, kid's screwed up again. Can't even do it. Can't even take three steps. You never hear the dad in the story go, time to start over. Maybe we can switch them for a different one. You never hear the dad in the story say those comments. You only hear the parents. You only see the parents, the aunts and uncles, the friends gathered around, even older brothers and sisters. You only see them heaping love, heaping praise, hugs and kisses the entire way. You only see the parents take the kid up, put him up one more time. You got two, let's go for three this time. You don't see the father withdraw his love from the child because he messed up. You see the father praising and cheering on the child for what he got right. 
I just need you to hear, church, that you have a heavenly Father who is not withdrawing his love for you. When you screw up, you have a heavenly Father who's showering love and affection on you. You have a heavenly Father who's cheering you on when you get it right. You got two steps. Let's go for three this time. Let's try to do one more. You can do this. Jesus in you, the Spirit of God living in you, you can do this. Another step, another step, and in the gap, When you do fall down, Jesus gets the credit for picking you right back up again. It's a win-win. How freeing we can live from the spirit of perfectionism and all of its problems. Now, just a bonus material. I mentioned that verb earlier that Paul used. My power is made perfect. Teleo, completed, finished, perfected, done. I'm the way to Jerusalem. Jesus, many of us know, had his hands nailed, his feet nailed to the cross. He died for us. One of the last things that he said before he died, three words in English, one word in Greek, it is finished. Tetelestai in Greek. It is completed. It is finished. It is perfected. Now I love this. In English, we have like three tenses, uh, present, past, and future. In Greek, there's like seven, which makes it an awesome language to learn, in case you're wondering. There's a whole bunch of other tenses. One of the tenses, ironically enough, is the perfect tense. He's saying the word perfect using the perfect tense. I just, you can't make this stuff up. I love it so much. Tetelestai. It specifically means not something that happened, that's like the past tense, but something that happened with an ongoing future implication. It is finished. It is done. It is perfected. Church, it simply means that when Jesus died and declared over the whole world, it is finished. He had you in mind. Let's stand up and let's pray to him. Our gracious God, you had us in mind. Lord, you died thinking of all the ways that you will perfect us, that you will finish, that you will complete us. And in the meantime, all of those gaps, Lord, you get the glory and you get the honor because it's through those cracks that the light shines brightest. Jesus, may we shine your light bright. Not by trying to live into an possible standard of perfection, Lord, but for owning our imperfections. May they drive each one of us to the need of a perfect Savior today. Jesus, your love is running after us. Your grace is running after us. Your goodness is running after us. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group, or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.